This podcast is brought to you by Brunner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbrunner.com and take your skills to the next level. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and my goal with each episode is to share stories of people who are recreating their lives or rising above challenges to write their next chapters with authenticity. These stories give me the courage to go after living my best life, and I think they will do that for you, too. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the show so this podcast can continue to inspire next chapters all over the world. Think back to a time when you felt you were at your best, on top of the world. What if you could feel that way over and over and over again? My guest says it is possible. He's a former wide receiver in the NFL who had natural talent and ability. But between injuries and what he says were his own mental roadblocks, he got dismissed and became a janitor to make ends meet. But through his experiences, he learned how to unleash his own power within. Today, he's an international leadership consultant and keynote speaker. Eric Bowles, welcome to my podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Liz. Excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. Eric, you achieved something that few men get to do. You played in the NFL for three different teams, the New York Jets, the San Diego Chargers, and the Green Bay Packers. But NFL for you meant not for long. Yes, each time an injury played a role in your departure, but you also now believe and say that you didn't feel like you deserved to be in the NFL. Why? At times, people call it the imposter syndrome, where you end up at a place probably beyond what you believe your competency is. So I functioned the whole time wondering when the other shoe was going to drop. This isn't just true for sports. We see it all the time, don't we, Liz, where you can get promoted to a place beyond what you thought you were capable of. Or sometimes people are in relationships and they're with a partner. You swear they're going to one day find out, you know, they've been set up. Um, right. right. <laughs> Those are some of the feelings I had. What I did not know, Liz, is I did not understand at the time the psychology beyond those things. I didn't know there was a way to rebuild and restore and reframe how I looked at myself and looked at the world. The last team you played with was the Green Bay Packers. And as you're leaving Lambeau Field after getting dismissed, you're walking by the very same people who hours earlier had asked you for your autograph. You are now just a quote-unquote fan. What was that feeling like for you? There's a complexity to it. On one level, it was embarrassing because I, you know, 15, 20 minutes earlier, I walked by some of these same fans signing autographs, signing footballs, and I still remember it very vividly. When I was let go after being basically uh, promoted to fan based on how the general manager described it, I remember walking by a young boy who I had signed his football earlier. He looks at me, looks at his football, looks at me again, and just shakes his head. It was funny when I look back now, I was like, he's ruined my ball. Like the only <laughs> ball I had today, I get it signed by a guy who's not even on the team. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. So at this point, you 
emotionally assume that because you failed at football, you're going to be a failure at everything else. And you Mm -hmm. went through, not surprisingly, a, a period of anger and depression and finding work as a janitor. But a year later, you're the main speaker for a group of Starbucks managers. What changed? Uh, Actually, what changed was me. You either can change because if you have this unbelievable aha moment and you're really inspired to make something happen, or you can go through enough pain or disgust that you go enough is enough. And for me, it was while sweeping one night, I had my dog with me, Miles, my Dalmatian, and him and I are cleaning you know, one of these buildings. And now keep in mind, I'm a college graduate, but I just can't find a job in between time. I got to take care of my family. My wife and I, we have not had my oldest daughter yet. Miles and I are walking around and cleaning this building. And there was a gentleman sitting at his desk with headphones on. He looks at me, slides his chair back, points under his desk for me to sweep out from under it. I do. He slides his chair back And I'm standing there, and it's not a reference to him. He did nothing wrong. It was nothing insulting. He was working. But I sat there and realized, six months ago, he may have asked for an autograph. I was in Lambeau Field, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and now I'm in the Pacific Northwest, Tacoma, Washington, cleaning out a building. And it was in that moment that I knew something had to change. That's just one of the many stories that are chronicled in your book, Moving to Great, unleashing your best in life and work. I finished reading it over the weekend and there were so many brilliant nuggets and practical insights from where you were to where you are today and how others can do the same. And you call the moving to great, the MTG philosophy, and it's broken up into four quarters, not surprisingly like football. (laughs) What is the focus of each quarter? The first quarter is who am I? And what that breaks down into is recognizing our potential, recognizing how change works in our lives, recognizing how conditioning works. There's one of them I like to say, we're born to win, but conditioned to lose. So that's that first quarter. And it's an identity issue. My identity and my job description live one in the same. So when I lost my job, my identity went with it. So I had to be reminded of just who I am. That second quarter is how did I get here? And that was when I finally understood how the mind works. Like I never knew that until that moment. I didn't realize you can have a ton of potential, but if your confidence doesn't match it, or you can have a ton of competency, but if your confidence doesn't match it, your performance will match the level of your confidence, not the level of your competency. Mm -hmm. And so for me, no matter how talented I was to play, because I thought I was a fraud and I didn't get how the brain worked, I played to that level. In that area, we talk about how the mind works. We talk about attitude, what it is. And attitude is the direction in which you lean at a subconscious level, confronts your spontaneous reactions. And then I got to go into the most, probably the deepest part of it was truly understanding my self-image mm-hmm. and understanding my self-esteem and knowing what those words actually meant. I used to think a positive attitude was a denial of reality. I used to think that self-image was something that people who were a little off talked about it. Oh, they talked to themselves, right? I had no clue how significant it was as a performance regulator. And I didn't realize that my esteem level was my psychological immune system. Once I understood that it changed everything. But then following that, that third quarter focused on where do I want to go? And I realized goal setting is simply designing what my future to look like. And how do I get there? It was just a plan of action. That happens cyclical. 
because every time you go through new seasons of life. So I just keep living those four cycles over and over again. All right. And what's the fourth quarter? That fourth quarter is all about creating a plan of action by which you can create real momentum. You know, in, in football, so often people talk about winning games. You know, you win games by how many times you can have the ball in your possession. Well, you can have the ball more in your possession and you're able to move the chains. And the way you may move the chains is you got to execute. So it's the little things that make the big difference. And if we repeat them over time, you get a compound effect of success. Another thing that you talk about in the book with the MTG philosophy, you say there are three ingredients to releasing potential. What are they? I always say the number one ingredient of natural talent ability that is one of the ingredients that make up your potential. Now, I wouldn't say it always releases it, but it does make up your potential. The problem, though, with natural ability and talent is the easier it is to be good, the more difficult it can be to be great. Yeah. And so we allow too often being good to get in the way of great. And so this is why it's very important when it comes to unleashing potential. Potential is not measured based on how well you're doing against your competition. Potential is measured against what does it look like competing against your very best? Mm -hmm. So that is a different measurement for a lot of people. They may be winning on the scoreboard, but they're still not unleashing their fullest potential because who they're competing against isn't that good. The other ingredients that makes up your potential is your knowledge base. I had a mentor of mine who called us just educated derelicts. We know a lot, but apply very little of it. And so just knowledge alone is an ingredient of potential, but it doesn't release it. And that third ingredient is our motivation, our intrinsic compelling urge to be better. But unfortunately, that kind of fluctuates with the wind. How do I stay motivated intrinsically from the inside out versus from the outside in? Being able to unleash that level of potential is something you have to do intentionally, but it works between the ears. You talked about self-esteem a moment ago, and there are actually seven steps that you have in your book to building healthy self-esteem, and people can read them all in the book. I'm not going to touch on all of them, but I do want to touch on two of them because I think, well, they're all important, but these two definitely stuck out for me. One of them is that we have to take 100% accountability for our Mm -hmm. actions and our decisions. Eric, that is so hard in life sometimes. It's just hard. You know, I was once really coached by a mentor of mine, and he would often say, Your real life begins the day you take full responsibility and accountability for your life. Now, that was hard because a lot of us don't want to hear that. You can sit back and say that it wasn't my fault. I believe in this. I really believe that. There's a lot of people even listening right now. There are some things that have happened to you that are not your fault. That's right. But. But it's still (laughs) your problem. (laughs) Well, we always have a choice. Even if something happens to us and it's out of our control that it happened to us, we still have that choice of how do we react to it. Well, it was so good. So he would remind me, he said, remember, you're ridiculously in charge, not ridiculously in control, but ridiculously in charge of how you're going to respond to what happened to you. And so when I say we take full accountability, and the word accountability is defined as to stand up and be counted. So I can count on myself. Like when something happens to me, how I respond, that's the word responsibility. My ability to properly respond, I fully own. Can't control everything that happens to me, but my response to it, that's 100% on me. And in the absence of that, that's not esteem. 
healthy self-esteem has more to do with your ability to deal with life's challenges is one of the key ingredients that make esteem healthy. And the other one I wanted to touch on with you, because I'm really curious about it, I know what your perspective is, but I want our listeners to hear it as well. We have to learn to appreciate the mistakes because they are the stepping stones to achievement. And I've always said that it's not failure, it's just a lesson. Do we learn the lesson? Liz, you hit it right there. I'm on a journey as well of progression, not perfection. So everything we talk about, we're all on this learning journey together. And my fear of failure was so heavy, especially after experiencing public failure. So I didn't just lose my job. When I lost my job in the NFL, it was on SportsCenter. So the whole world knew when I got drafted, the whole world knew when I got cut. And I promise you, the draft party when I first got to it was much bigger <laughs> than the party I had when I got cut. There was nobody here but mom and dad. Okay, okay. Wow. So, so it's a different thing. But in the point that you were just making about mistakes being stepping tones, I want people to hear this in a very practical way. Every mistake we make is like data, it's practice. We're not trying to be better, we're training to be better. And the only way to get better is to have enough reps at it to do something. So many people fear failure, what they're really doing, you shouldn't fear failure, you should fear not learning. And so Liz, when you just said what you just said about, hey, these failures are part of learning, that's the only way to keep growing. A learning leader is a growing leader. A learning leader is also a earning leader because you keep learning new ways to earn value or to, to create greater value by which people want to compensate that for. And so from a, a mistake standpoint, the more frequent the mistakes, you then can get that much better. My father, you said, well, he said, son, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And part of making mistakes creates pain. I was like, yeah, that's why I try to avoid it. He says, oh, no. <laughs> he says, don't avoid pain, son. Just don't waste pain. <laughs> don't waste pain. So make sure for every mistake that creates pain, gain something from that pain. And that's the learning that we get from. You also write in the book, and you mentioned it a moment ago, we are born to win, but conditioned to lose. What does that mean? It's amazing if I go to a kindergarten class right now and ask a bunch of five-year-olds, how many of you can let's say run a, a triathlon, right? Or a marathon. Every hand goes up in the room. If there's 30 kids, there's 60 hands in the air. What happens between age five and 10? And ask 10-year-olds the same question and not one hand goes up. They're suspicious. They're curious. They look at you. Don't raise your hand. This must be a trick. What happened in these kids' lives that was so challenging, right? <laughs> now, that, that, all that creative optimism leans aboard. Here's one of the things they said. They said kids at the age of five or six are 87% are highly creative. By the age of 12, it's down to less than 30%. Wow. And so when we say born to win, conditioned to lose, every fear, every sense of loss, so those are conditioned dynamics. Most of the things I'm afraid of, not all of them actually happen to me. I'm carrying a lot of other people's fears that have just been passed on to me. And so this is why we use that phrase, born to win, condition to lose. It takes time for all of us to remember, okay, what was I actually born for? What does winning actually look like? Where are these self-imposed limitations, these mm -hmm. beliefs that I have that are influencing or guiding uh, in the way of me actually unleashing the potential that I have? One of the other beautiful insights that you share, and it touches on this a little bit that you're just talking about, 
your beliefs may have been true at one time, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean they are still true today. I think that is so beautiful because we do get stuck sometimes thinking, well, this is the way it's always been, so it's going to always be this way. How do we get unstuck? If I don't actually know who I am, and I'm, I'm talking about completely like who I am spiritually, who I am emotionally, who I am mentally, and not only who I am today, but the potential of what I can possibly be. Carol Dweck, who wrote uh, Mindset, she says, you end up starting to believe that you can't grow, like you're stuck in one place. I understand for animals that can happen. That's, that's why anytime you see a, an elephant being controlled by a rope around his leg, mm-hmm. like you're sitting there going, how in the world does that rope hold an elephant in place. Well, because when the elephant was young, they used the chain and concrete. But as it got older, it's now it's just a flimsy rope. The problem is the elephant didn't realize it grew up. Well, for a lot of us, we have the same problem that what may have been true at the time doesn't mean it's still true today. We grew up, Mm -hmm. but there's just a lot of us who don't realize we grew up, right? And so we keep living by those same beliefs that may have been true. I actually ran into somebody recently who's 40 years old. They're like, oh, I'm not very creative. Whatever. I just played the game. I said, let me ask you a question. When did you find out you weren't very good at whether art or being great? It was like, oh, I remember I was eight years old or whatever. And I realized it was just their older siblings who had told them how bad they drew. They drew, oh, that looks terrible. And they took it as their truth, and they've been living it now Mm -hmm. since. I was like, now, not that it's a big deal, because you don't really care, you know, about this area. But I just asked them, is there any other areas that are more important to you that also may not be true? Like, at least examine them. Because some of the things you're complaining about not experiencing your life might be right there for you. It's just these beliefs that have been conditioned into you that may not be accurate. It's worth the consideration. Well, Game Changers is your training and development company where you as a management leadership consultant and executive coach are working all over the world with clients like Starbucks, UPS, U.S. Air Force, just to name a few. And you're helping them to achieve their goals really quickly and ensuring that they're really in alignment with their purpose and their values. And I also know you love keynote speaking. You said that you thought playing in the NFL would give you fulfillment and purpose, but it pales in comparison to speaking. But I am curious, do you miss anything about playing football? My teammates. That's what I miss. Every success that you have with a team or a group that you really care about is magnified. And then every disappointment that you have is cut in half because you have each other. And so that's what I miss. I miss the locker room. I miss the guys. I miss the things we laughed about. Many people think people love you get together and you talk about the championship you won. No, you get together and talk about training camp and the rough parts of the season and the jokes. And that's what I miss. I don't miss getting hit. Um, <laughs> oh, shocking. <laughs> don't miss any of that. <laughs> I know from reading your book that you have two daughters. You're kind of a girl dad, I'm going to say, oh, Taylor and Madison. Yes, what have Taylor and Madison taught you? So much. First of all, let me start with Taylor. Taylor, she's the most uh, mature individual who's ever been in our house. That's no downplay of my wife, Cindy. Taylor's ability to be calm and she's so clear and articulate and she's unbelievably loving. She's brilliant. She actually works for me now. And so she is just phenomenal. 
how she communicates and but also how she can process information. Like she can take in information and then no matter what the conflict is, she doesn't avoid difficult conversations, but she can bring out the opportunity in every difficult conversation because of how she approaches it. It is really ingenious. I wish I could take credit for it. That is not the case. I can talk about it, but I can't always practice it like she can. So that's what I got from Taylor. From Madison, I've always said Madison is the strongest. My baby girl, Madison, she's about to graduate from Colorado State University this year. And she was a volleyball player and great athlete and everything. But Madison's the toughest because this year she had to medically retire last year because of lupus. Then she got anemia. And then in the last year, we have it's a success story, but one of my... My baby got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. We ended up finding out she had cancer. Uh, she lost 40 pounds. She went through the whole thing. And I have never seen somebody so strong, so amazing. She used it, spoke from it, used it on stage, helped to get all kinds of things to the point now that she has rung the bell. She's cancer free. She's doing fantastic, about to graduate. What did I take from that? Not only her strength, but it also reminded me, I had a relative who told me this. When she first got diagnosed, I really played the the victim card, like myself. Like, I was like, what did I do wrong? What did I, well, how did I, you know, just as a parent would do when something's going through a child. I have a cousin who also went through cancer and she looked at me, she goes, Eric, you know how hard it is to be the one going through cancer, but always trying to encourage everybody else around you. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, this isn't about you. This is about Madison. So how you best support Madison? It was a tough conversation, but it was a necessary one. And so I've learned a lot from that experience. Also that my wife is way stronger than me, right? <laughs> <laughs> In your book, I know you're a firm believer of affirmations. So am I. And you believe that you really have to say, I am, I am yes. this, I am that. And you offer many examples in the book that really can help people what is your one most favorite affirmation for yourself? I am calm, cool, and collective in pressure situations. My heartbeat slows down the greater the moment. I say that because it reminds me to do the opposite of what I did when I was a player. I was great in practice, but when the moment would show up on game time, my pressure and my nerves would overwhelm me mm. that instead of rising to the occasion, I would bring the occasion down to the level I was, which is, you know, unfortunately at a much lower level. So I've learned to be calm, cool, and collective in pressure situations, which has freed me up to bring my full talent to bear. I would also actually tell you, Liz, one of the ways it's translated is I coach a lot of executives, especially many of them at you know, our CEO for some of our Fortune 500 companies. That affirmation has allowed me to have more courageous conversations. In the absence of that, it would not be. But now I see myself as a person. That's what I am. That's who I am. The bigger the moment, the bigger I am. And I had to affirm that enemy because that wasn't always the case. Eric's book is called Moving to Great, Unleashing Your Best in Life and Work. It is a practical step-by-step -step guide to help you move your life forward in the best possible way. And you can learn more about Eric's book and all about Eric at his website, ericbowles.com. That's E-R-I-C-B-O-L-E-S.com. ericbowles.com. We'll have that in our show notes as well. Eric, thank you so much for giving us the tools today so that we can ourselves design the life that we want to live and sharing with us that goal attainment isn't an event. It's a lifestyle. Thank you so much for sharing. 
Thank you so much for having me, Liz. This was wonderful. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. And remember, living your best, most successful life depends on you. As Eric writes in his book, it's time to take action. Nothing moves until something moves. So I invite you to get moving. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.